Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Time of the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is what? What is today? Uh, October 6th, Friday, October 6th. Good God, damn, is flying. Uh, here's a headline that will immensely delight in a perverse way uh, my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting to come on. This headline, when I, <laughs> I mean, it's in, in its own way, it's kind of an onion-like headline, but it's really true, and um, it speaks so much to where we are right now in our uh, uh, in our world. Um, Donald Trump endorses uh, Jim Jordan for uh, Speaker of the House. Let's just pause and think about that <laughs> on two fronts. That Jim Jordan is a has a good chance of being the next uh, Speaker of the House. The man's a lunatic. Uh, that Donald Trump uh, matters at all in politics today. Uh, he is a fill in the word lunatic, fraud, crook, racist, uh, insurrectionist. I mean. I'm sure my distinguished guests will have more words to add to that list. Uh, four different cases against him. He uh, has been convicted in a case uh, where they essentially of uh, sexual assault. I mean, need I go more on and on about Donald Trump? And yet he's still not just relevant, but the controlling factor in the Republican Party. In this article, in this New York Times article uh, that talks about how uh, Trump is endorsing Jordan, uh, there were some congressman who says, it's very important that we listen to the leader of our party. Wow. (laughs) It's surreal. He's the leader of the Republican Party. He's like a monster. They just can't stop. He's got four different criminal cases against him across the country and then it's the fraud case in new york which we've already talked about extensively on this uh on this show i am utterly obsessed with donald trump's fraud <laughs> it's just it kind of reminds me so much of real how real estate deals get put together in the city of chicago actually so i just it's like a revealing uh insight but uh, yes i guess it does matter he he interrupted uh, the, the, this, these comments were made, by the way, on the steps of the courthouse in New York City, where he was going to head into this the trial against him, where they're trying to. The, the judge has already ruled that he committed fraud; that he essentially had two different books on his property: one for the uh, tax assessors of New York, and another for the bankers who were dumb enough to give him the loans. So he had two separate books. Uh, the judge has ruled that now that there, the issue is how much he has to pay. Uh, and penalties for his crimes. And yet he interrupted his very busy day in court uh, to say uh, he supports Jim Jordan as in his role 
uh, as leader of the Republican Party. Wow. Straight out of the onion. All right. Without further ado, my distinguished guest is waiting uh, to come on. So introduce yourself and we'll get right to it, distinguished guest. Great. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University here in Chicago, columnist for Slate and Newsweek, and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And um, I like to, I always like to describe Donald Trump as a friendless, joyless sociopath. Um because I think that's best captures like he doesn't smile or enjoy life or seemingly have any confidants or friends um, and has alienated more or less every single person that he's ever come into contact with in, in his life, if, if not defrauding them uh, and wants to usher in history's stupidest autocracy. So um, what a guy. And he's I love that he's considered the party leader, even though he himself will not pledge to support the party nominee for president if it's not him. Uh, some party leadership right there. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> party loyalty, not Wait. for me, I guess, right? <laughs> wow, that's I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, that just underscores the absurdity of it all. Our party's leader <laughs> who's interrupting his fraud trial to make yeah, it's like balance. I'm a big Phillies fan. I don't know if I'm going to root for him in the playoffs this year, but but big Phillies fan. Uh, we'll just have to see. Depends on who's the starting pitcher. <laughs> yes, I love Kyle Schwarber, but. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to root for him. All right. Um, David Ferris was busy writer today, uh, excuse me, this week, uh, to, again, the absurdity of the news, uh, David. You're a, uh, a professor, a political scientist, an academic, uh, and I don't mean to say, this is going to sound like uh, I'm trivializing what you do, because I think you have a real talent. Uh, for satire and absurdity. You have a great ear for absurdity. So your columns are not in any way, ladies and gentlemen, like traditional scholarly treatises. They're like Mike Royko columns. And Mike Royko, for youngsters out there, was one of the great Chicago political, probably the greatest columnist in the history of Chicago. Uh, really insightful political satire he wrote from the 60s into uh, the 90s, moving to the right on the, at the end of his career. I urge everybody to read his 60s and 70s. Anyway, here's the lead. Well, there's two uh, topics you delved, uh, you, you dove into. One uh, was McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy being ousted as House Speaker. We have to discuss that. And the other, which was almost forgotten and missed it all, <laughs> With the Republican debate from oh my God, they're so white. I'm sorry, folks, they're crazy. Uh, we'll deal with we'll deal with um, Kevin McCarthy, and I will now lead to you. Read to you, ladies and gentlemen, of the lead from David Ferris. This is in Newsweek, his column in Newsweek. Yesterday, Republicans issued one of their periodic and predictable reminders of why they cannot be trusted to govern. By allowing a dunderhead backbencher to depose House Speaker Kevin McCarthy without any idea of who might replace him. McCarthy resisted overtures from Democrats who would have been willing to save his speakership in exchange for substantive concessions and who instead voted unanimously with eight Republican radicals to ungavel him. The House is now without leadership and no one, including those who orchestrated McCarthy's ouster, knows what will happen next. Uh, a dunderhead backbencher. All right. Uh, why don't you uh, take the deep dive on what you're talking about? Uh, the dunderhead backbencher. Who is he? Uh, what motivated him? And what uh, Kevin McCarthy might have done to save his neck? Take it away, David Ferris. Sure. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> the gentleman in question is named Matt Bates. <laughs> and he is... Um, of course, a Republican from uh, the great state of Florida, uh, who I believe was first elected in 2018 um, as, a, as a freshman U.S. representative. And um, since the very beginning of his tenure, Matt Gates has distinguished himself by his like uh, absurd antics and um, shady background. Uh, there's this whole thing with an, like an allegedly adopted son and um, his, his friendship with... Um, like Lauren Boebert and I, it's just, he's just like a weird guy. Um, but beyond the weirdness, uh, of him personally, and he's of course, like every Republican weirdo has to have weird hair. Okay. That's like a, that's like a requirement for the job. 
It's like, do you want to be part of the Freedom Caucus? You want to get on the news all the time? Are you a maniac? Good. Uh, you're going to have to do something really, really bizarre with your hair. Uh, and you got to do that every day so that people know who you are. That's Matt Gates. Um, he's the one, uh, if you remember, he like took all of the, he took a bunch of Republicans to like storm a Democratic committee meeting. Um, I think it was during the impeachment hearings, the first impeachment, impeachment hearings. Um, so he's a, he's a stuntman, right? Like no, no meaningful interest in policy. Uh, generally doesn't know what he's talking about anyway, um, but very good at getting himself on the news. And of course, here we are talking about him, right? Matt, this is the Matt Gates Fest. Um, and he has penetrated the local Chicago news market. Look at this. So <laughs> Gates is um, <laughs> Gates is part of the, it's called the House Freedom Caucus. Um, and uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how Congress works, um, different ideological or, or practical groupings in Congress form uh, as like a little team within a team. Um, and they're called caucuses. We have uh, on our side, we have the Progressive Caucus, which has about 90 members. Um, and those are people who share a general outlook and ideology uh, about what direction they want public policy to be taken. And the House Freedom Caucus is, um, you know, their their shared ideology is uh, is like starve the government and um, inflict truly radical cuts on social spending programs that we all depend on, like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and of course, never touch the military because that's not spending. That's just that's just a thing we're not allowed to think about. Um, but that's. Um, that's the group that he's a part of. Worth noting that Jim Jordan, um, prospective speaker of the House, was one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus um, about 10 years ago. So um, the the genesis of this particular coup attempt against McCarthy, which did succeed, God bless them, <laughs> is that um, when he was uh, failing on 14 consecutive ballots to become the speaker in January, remember this? Um, he, he cut... A, he cut a bunch of deals with the Freedom Caucus, probably the most pertinent of which um, is that any single member um, of the House of Representatives can force uh, like a no confidence vote in, uh, in McCarthy himself. Um, it's called technically a motion to vacate the chair. Um, but it reminds me a lot of a no confidence vote in, in Parliament. So um, prior to that, the bar... Um, to remove a house speaker was much higher. <laughs> um, and, and now, uh, like you still need the votes to get rid of him. Right. Um, but the, but the procedure that McCarthy allowed to be put into the house rules, remember every two years there's a new house and they adopt a new set of rules because the house and the Senate make their own rules. Um, those new rules that were adopted, uh, like basically gave this, absurd power to, to any single Republican who wanted to get rid of him at any time. Um, and the, when you put a, a motion to vacate on the agenda, it has to be dealt with uh, immediately. Right. So it granted these maniacs the, the ability to basically shut down the house's business anytime they wanted, anytime they were remotely unhappy with what anything McCarthy was doing uh, because they didn't trust him um, to take a hard line in budget negotiations. That's kind of what this is all about. Um, and so McCarthy has, has more or less cracked twice now, um, and signed deals with the Biden administration that I, they're much more favorable to the democratic set of policy positions than they are to Republicans. Um, they didn't get their steep cuts in the debt ceiling fight. They did not get their steep cuts or their, you know, um, magical border wall security funding. That's another thing we could talk about Biden getting on board with a border wall. Um, uh, let me not get sidetracked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, basically after the debt ceiling thing in the spring, um, you know, the kind of like the freedom caucus people were like, you're, uh, we're putting you on notice, Kev, um, you do this again, we're going to get rid of you. And, uh, once again, when he put through that, uh, 45 day continuing spending resolution, um, a couple of weeks ago, that was, I guess that was the last straw for Matt Gates and his friends. Um, they were like, you betrayed us twice. They don't have any meaningful theory of how they how they're going to get what they want out of a Democratic Senate or a White House. They just want a scalp, um, and they they want a more radical person than the speakership. I think I don't even think this is really about the negotiations per se. I think it's about having uh, somebody friendlier to the Freedom Caucus, somebody more radical, um, somebody who's better on TV at uh, drumming up media attention. They just want they just want McCarthy out. So that's what they did. Um, Gates put the motion on the floor. Um, 
and uh, and McCarthy was defeated. He uh, eight, he only lost eight Republican votes um, from his majority, um, and those were seven Freedom Caucus nutters, and then Nancy Mace, who's not one of them, um, and is thought of as a so-called moderate, whatever that means in today's terms. Um, but for whatever reason, reasons that are really only known to her, she she voted to to cashier McCarthy too. So. Um, yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but my favorite moment of all this was when the when the final votes were coming in. Patrick McHenry, who was who was gaveling the session, slammed the gavel down like it was like the worst moment of his life, and just like walked away um, because a lot of his fellow Republicans are very angry at Matt Gates for what he's done. Um, and the two interesting things we can talk about from this: one is that Democrats could have saved McCarthy if they had wanted to. Um, by voting to retain him, only um, you know about they had three Democrats um, had voted for McCarthy, he would still be the speaker. Um, but Hakeem Jeffries, <laughs> I don't love all of his politics, man. But um, but he has the Pelosi talent to keep the caucus together. I tell you, I'll tell you what. Um, and they had a they had a closed door meeting before this happened, and everybody was aired their grievances against McCarthy and. Turns out, uh, it looks like <laughs> it's like all 213 Democrats hated him, um, and uh, and they all voted in unison um, to vacate the chair. Um, and so, in a, in a meaningful sense, this was a rebellion of eight people against the Speaker. The Democrats held together, um, and now there's and now there's no one. There's nothing that can nothing can happen in the House um, until they get a new Speaker whether that's Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise or someone we haven't thought about yet. Um, the, the reality is we have no leadership in the house, no legislation to get through and we're taken down to a government shutdown. Okay. So um, let's get into the democratic strategy. And uh, I I'm with you. I've been saying this on the mic all week, really remarkable leadership from Hakeem Jeffries uh, putting aside, whether it was wise, pretty putting aside what it leads to just, pure leadership uh and he i know nobody uh in washington uh the democratic party will want me to hear to hear what i have to say next but i don't care it reminded me of michael joseph madigan here in illinois uh the Demo- the republicans have effectively turned michael madigan uh in, <laughs> into like a curse word you're not allowed to utter his name anymore but the man understood uh, how to wield the power as speaker uh, and how to keep everything was about keeping the caucus, preserving the caucus, just like Nancy Pelosi. So I watched these these speakers who are masters of the game. Uh, and we have a new uh, a new House speaker here in Illinois, Chris Welch, who is a very shrewd uh, practitioner of the game of politics. So Keem Jeffries, hats off, man. That was that's some serious uh, politicking. That said, strategically, in your humble opinion, uh, was it in the best interest of the country, the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party uh, to uh, cut off uh, Kevin McCarthy at the knees and then await what happens? Or could you would could you have made a better argument, a stronger argument for keeping McCarthy in? even Just allowing those three votes that he needed, whatever votes he needed, or a few present votes, you know, or uh, there's all kinds of games they could have played. Doing whatever had to be done to allow McCarthy to uh, hold on to his power. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm with Hakeem Jeffries here. I mean, I, I, I understand the opposite case, right? Like, I think it's fairly clear that we're likely to get someone worse than McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. Okay, whatever they choose. I don't actually happen to think this is going to go on and on and on. I think, you know, somebody like Jordan or Scalise will, will win the Speakership fairly easily perhaps agreeing to term the same kind of terms that were imposed on McCarthy and they might not be around very long. Um, but I don't, I don't think we're going to be flailing without a speaker for a long time. Um, I understand the case that McCarthy is a, a you know, the devil that, you know, probably willing to cut deals on the budget and ha- have us all kind of stagger across the finish line in, in 2024 until we can get a new Congress in there. Um, but uh, the, Josh Marshall runs a website called Talking Points Memo, has been making this point over and over again, and I, I'm just going to steal it. <laughs> okay. Um, the dynamic in Washington, um, and this is reproduced by the press over and over again, 
is that Democrats are always presumed to be the good guys and Republicans are presumed to be trash. And whenever something critical needs to happen, um, it, it is always, the assumption is always that Democrats just have to like buckle up and do the right thing, even when the politics aren't there for them. Okay. Um, and so the idea that Democrats have to solve this problem for Republicans is a like part of what's wrong with everyone's understanding of Washington. This is a problem that Republicans inflicted on themselves. It's a problem based on a deal that McCarthy signed with his own radicals. Okay? Um, and the fact that the alternatives to McCarthy um, are, are a bunch of grubby maniacs who, who you wouldn't allow within 20 feet of your kids, um, that is not the responsibility of the Democratic Party to solve that problem for them. Um, and so I don't understand what the upside would be of keeping McCarthy in there. Okay. Like you're right. There's 18 different ways that they could have kept McCarthy around and they could have, they could have placed the responsibility on three completely invulnerable Democrats um, in landslide districts. And just said, you know, like go give McCarthy his three votes uh, because we don't want to deal with Steve Scalise or we don't want to deal with Jim Jordan. Um, But that's overlooking the fact that McCarthy has been terrible. Um, He has gone back on his word with Democrats several times. He's made deals with Democrats that he's reneged on. And then he greenlit this like preposterous impeachment inquiry into President Biden precisely to placate the the Freedom Caucus uh, group. And that didn't work either. You know, and so again and again, it's like McCarthy's own miscalculations are what has brought Kevin McCarthy to the point of not being the speaker anymore. But the D.C. press corps is like, well, those rascally Democrats, like they're like they're the ones that forced the vote, like they're the ones that put the motion to vacate on the floor. All the Democrats have done is just vote for Hakeem Jeffries over and over and over again. They've been quite consistent on that. And that's what they're going to keep doing. So um, I don't see the upside for uh, for keeping McCarthy. The other thing is that, like, you know, the debt ceiling has been punted beyond the next election. Right. So we can't default on the national debt. The, the worst that can happen is a, is a government is an extended government shutdown, which may very well have happened under McCarthy anyway. Um, and the reality is, if they want to get a budget through the Senate and signed by the White House, Whoever it is, um, Scalise, McCarthy, uh, Speaker Lauren Boebert, Speaker Taylor Green, whatever, any of these knuckleheads is going to have to do the same thing. And this is another piece of like the presume, like Democrats are presumed to be the good guys. Um, how many times in the last 10 years have Republicans turned to Democrats to pass a budget that they can't get through their own lunatic caucus? And so that's what happened with the debt ceiling. That's what happened with the, with the 45 day continuing resolution. It's what's going to happen when, however, the, the government gets funded next month is the speaker of the house is going to turn to Democrats and be like, help me, please, please help me. Do you see these, do you see these people over in the corner here? Uh, Matt Gates, Lauren Boba, you see these? They're not going to, they're not going to go for any of this stuff unless you like uh, eliminate social security or build like a 500 foot wall along the entire 2000 mile border. Which Joe Biden seems to be, uh, <laughs> it's, We'll get to that bit of piece of madness in a little bit. Uh, but it all comes back to when I began the, uh, this segment, this episode with the absurdity of Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. So the Republican Party is a lunatic party. I, I mean, it's pledges allegiance to this criminal and this fraud. Everything after it, you know what I mean? It's sort of kind of follows. You, you can see the connection. Uh, and so Kevin McCarthy, who is essentially more or less a traditional American politician, is trying to fit himself into the insanity of MAGA uh, and knowing that if he deviates from MAGA, he could experience the same fate as uh, Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger. So to save his neck, this is his political thinking, he has to go to Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> kiss the ring of this lunatic, uh, and then listen to Matt Gates and pretend as though there is s- something sub- substantive there as opposed to like you said posturing to get on tv and whoever knows what deviant stuff is in his mind and the other thing he could have done which he i don't think he ever even remotely considered it would to take jim Clyburn's advice 
Jim Clyburn, the, the congressman from South Carolina, been around for a long time, a Democrat. He's the reason Joe Biden is our president, or one of the main reasons. And cut a deal with them, a legitimate deal with Democrats. Not, please save me <laughs> deal, which you then trash the Democrats like within a week, you go on TV and trash them. But do you, do you think there was ever a moment when Kevin McCarthy or any of these Republicans thought about, you know, why don't we just cut a deal with the Democrats and uh, remove ourselves from the lunacy of Trump and the Freedom Caucus? I don't think there was a moment where he considered it. Um, and it wouldn't take him much, you know. Uh, he just said, like, we're not going to do the impeachment inquiry. And, um, you know, we'll basically we'll, we'll pass a series of, like, uncontroversial budgets um, and we won't shut down the government. I mean, I think he just I, the Democrats would have signed on to McCarthy. It basically if he just promised not to make trouble uh, until after the next election, you know, and he couldn't do that because he's exactly like the rest of the party. Right. He's an ideologue. You know that he's a he's a traditional Washington politician, but he he is a radical um, in terms of his policy outlook. And at the end of the day, again and again and again during the Trump era, we've seen the same thing happen. Remember in like 2017, 2018, um, when like if John McCain and um, uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski had switched parties. Um, they could have, you know, they, they could have stopped Trump from doing some of the things that he did. Um, Susan Collins could have, you know, <laughs> stopped Roe v. Wade from being overturned. Um, and it, when push comes to shove, they don't, you know, their, their top priority is not the good of the country. Their top priority is the, is the Republican ideological project. And, and I think in, in McCarthy's view, working with Democrats, um, even for a year, would be a worse outcome than having the house controlled by another ideologue um, who happens to be more procedurally radical than he is. Um, And so he chose, uh, he chose his party over his country, which is what Republicans have done again and again and again, because McCarthy wants the policy wins and does not care about the long-term damage that a speaker Scalise who once described himself as David Duke without the baggage or Jim Jordan, who most notoriously looked the other way, um, as a wrestling coach at Ohio State, um, as his uh, as the head coach was sexually abusing the wrestlers. Okay, so that, those are your two contenders, right? And McCarthy says, you know what? Never mind. The policy is more important than anything that has anything to do with these guys. Uh, so that having just laid out the choice, <laughs> uh, Jordan versus Scalise, uh, if you were in Congress, who would you want opt for, Scalise or Jordan? <laughs> this is like Trump DeSantis all over again. I, I apologize, yeah. to the, apologize to our listeners, Ben. I just decided to make a container of bubbly water. I didn't really think about how much noise I was going to make. Um, but, um, it's all good. <laughs> a sleep deprived. I, I, I would go Scalise in terms of like who I think would do the less damage to the United States of America in the next uh, 15 months. Um, Scalise is a, you know, he's like a, he's a terrible person. (laughs) Um, He's a terrible person, but he's not, I don't think he's as politically toxic to like shared norms um, and any possibility of working together as Jim Jordan is. Like the reason that, I mean, we're, (laughs) It, it doesn't matter. Like Jordan got Trump's nod, right? Um, uh, he got the reverse Midas touch. And so Trump will turn him to, to a pile of dust eventually. But now I have to assume it's going to be Jim Jordan because of Trump. But I think that Scalise is an, an even harder policy ideologue than, than McCarthy is. Um, but I don't think that he's necessarily someone uh, who doesn't care if he, if he fundamentally like breaks Washington forever. Um, Whereas Jim Jordan is just like a, you know, a, a camera mugging sycophant for Donald Trump, um, who was one of the ringleaders of the of the Trump strategy of coming up with alternative narratives to explain away obvious, undeniable facts, um, like the fact that he blackmailed the Ukrainian president on, <laughs> in a recorded phone call. And Jim Jim Jordan is one of those people that's he's an alternative narrative creator, and I don't actually think Scalise has that talent. Um, 
And so I guess I'd prefer Scalise in a vacuum. Um, but I'm not, we're, we're not going to enjoy either of their speakerships. No, uh, not at all. And then of course, before we go, I switch, uh, to last week's uh, great debate. Uh, there's also the, <laughs> this note. There's, I think it's 18 Republicans. I always forget the exact number, uh, who, uh, represent districts that actually voted for Joe Biden over Trump. And one of the absurdities of politics today is that they will choose between Jordan and Scalise, as opposed to a third alternative, Hakeem Jeffries, who is arguably much more in line with their constituents than either Scalise uh, or uh, Jim Jordan. And um, this is one of the, I guess when I think about it, it's some, a disappointment with the Republican Party uh, is... I expect nothing from a Scalise or a Jordan and when I get or a McCarthy or a Gates, but these 18, David, I expect more from them. You know, it just, <laughs> uh, is there any possibility that you see that, uh, of those, you know, a handful of Republican, quote unquote, moderates, centrists, whatever they are, uh, joining forces with the Democrats to prevent Scalise or Jordan from being the speaker. Look, anything's possible. Um, I don't think Republicans are a normal party, and I don't like to make these comparisons necessarily, but I would think about this from the other direction, right? And the argument that I've made again and again is that individual members of Congress who are in tough districts or even Republican districts, distancing themselves from their own party or making trouble for their own party has not been a winning formula in the 21st century. Um, So you think back to like the 2014 Senate cycle when people like Arizona's uh, Mark Pryor and um, what was her name in in, uh, North Carolina? Um, Doesn't matter. (laughs) Kay Hagan. Um, these are senators who distance, who would like deliberately put a bunch of distance between themselves and Obama thinking that it might save them on election day. And it did not save them. Like, I think the lesson of the 21st century is your individual fortunes are going to rise and fall with those of your party. Right. So I think the calculation that those, uh, Republicans will make is not about whether they're closer to Hakeem Jeffries or whether they personally like Scalise or Jordan or not, but what they think the best move for the Republican party is. Um, and my guess is they will they will find their way to the conclusion that making a Democrat the speaker <laughs> is not going to be in the best interest of the Republican Party. Um, and, I, you know, all this other stuff, uh, incipient authoritarianism and fascism and the, like the, the racist, deranged people that might become speaker. All of that aside, I can't blame them right, for making the calculation about like, you know, what is most likely to keep us in the majority next year. However, <laughs> I, I do think that a few of them could make trouble, right? Because um, I don't think anybody's going to vote for Jeffries. Right? Um, but I do think that they could demand a consensus or a compromise candidate, um, somebody like, like Don Bacon or somebody that's not even in Congress. Um, every, t- every time there's like speaker drama, uh, a, a large percentage of Americans discovers that you don't have to be a sitting member of the house to be the speaker of the house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they could be like, you know what? It's Liz Cheney or bust um, or whatever. Um, figuring that a, a more moderate or a more moderate seeming Republican leading the house could give them a better chance of retaining the house and thus retaining their own seats. So if there's going to be trouble for Scalise or Jordan from this group of Republicans, what did you say? 18? Um, my guess is the trouble is not going to be we're going to vote for Hakeem uh, Jeffries. It's going to be uh, these two are not acceptable to us, right? Also, the terms that we agreed to for McCarthy, we're not doing that either, right? Like we're not going to allow a lone knucklehead to to torpedo this whole thing. Um, and so I would expect some hemming and hawing. Um, like I said at the beginning, I I do personally think that ultimately one of the two candidates who's announced their, their, their bid for the speakership will become the speaker. But um, uh, I said five days ago <laughs> that I didn't think that they were going to get rid of McCarthy. So I don't know. I'm not good at predicting the future of the Republican caucus, uh, but I, I do think 
that the, the direction of that challenge would be a, a consensus Republican candidate, a more moderate Republican, um, who might be able to work with Democrats a little bit better and not make them look terrible. Because remember, the, the kind of seats they're defending are like the ones that happened because of the Democratic catastrophe in New York or Democratic underperformance in California. Like there's a bunch of seats in deep blue states um, that Democrats lost last time around that they're going to have a much better shot at in 2024. And these, these guys know it. And I, I don't think they're going to go down without a fight, per se. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I actually did think uh, there was a very good chance uh, McCarthy would lose uh, other, unless the Democrats saved him. Uh, and um, I, I, I was a little caught. I, I have to admit, I was a little caught off guard when I watched that uh, the votes go down, that the Democrats voted as a block. Uh, against McCarthy, effectively. Uh, and I, I, I'll push back with you a little bit. I hope uh, they keep that uh, provision uh, in the rules that allows one person to uh, uh, f- force a vote on the f- speaker because it just, I just think it exposes uh, the extremism of the Republican Party. Uh, and uh, so if they're going to force this extremism down our throats, even though it's no, nowhere close. And this gets to uh, another essay that you wrote, which we'll move to. It's nowhere close to where the uh, majority of American voters are on any issue, on any issue. If because of gerrymandering and because of their cult-like allegiance to Donald Trump, uh, they're going to force us to tolerate people like Jordan and Scalise. Well, well then... You know, let's just have utter chaos in the house because um, I'd rather have the chaos at the moment than, my God, the policies that um, these folks would impose. Uh, All right, let's move on to your other essay, which uh, (laughs) has to do with the um, uh, the. the debate, if you could call it that, uh, last Wednesday, which has completely been forgotten. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll read a section uh, of your uh, – so this was in Slate, I think. Yeah, Slate. Uh, I, not Newsweek, Slate.com. Uh, and uh, your analysis of the debate. And then you raise a, a point that I would love for you to go into about how um, – re- removed the Republicans are from the majority. So here we go. Quote, it wasn't all bad for Republicans. They took their shots at inflation and spending, promised to repeal laws that don't exist. I love that. Promised to repeal laws that don't exist, like the Green New Deal, and trotted out 2020 era hallucinations like the idea that Joe Biden is hiding in his basement. (laughs) There were puns galore, including Christie's claim Chris Christie, that skipping the debates meant that Trump should be known as, quote, Donald Duck, womp, womp. Perhaps most entertainingly, the other candidates successfully beat up on the utterly unbearable Vivek Ramaswamy, end of quote. Uh, That absolutely sums up the lunacy of the debate. But then you go on to point out that every position they took pretty much was at odds where the majority of Americans are. And even with the electoral college advantages that they have, that you highlighted the last time we were on this show, it still makes it very difficult uh, for them to to, uh, actually defeat Joe Biden. Uh, So take it away with a deep dive on these points. Sure, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a remarkable display of um, hard-headedness in terms of understanding or responding to changing public opinion about various issues. Um, you know, as I've said many times on this show, Ben, I, Republicans are on the wrong side of most public policy issues, but not all of them. Okay, there are there are a few, I think, hot topic, hot button issues where the Republican position is probably closer to the public, but the American public opinion consensus than than ours is. Um, there have been some tough polls uh, about immigration in the in the southern border for Biden recently that explains his, I think, cowardly, but. Uh, it is what it is. Decision to to proceed with uh, with building sections of barriers along the southern border, and that's a pure response. I think a probably overreaction to some polling that suggests Republicans have an advantage on immigration right now. Okay, um, and I also don't think that you necessarily should be chasing public opinion around constantly, even when you're chasing it 
into a position that's wrong uh, or morally indefensible. Right? Like people are capable of thinking and believing terrible things, right? And I don't think that politicians necessarily owe it to them to come around to their side on, on everything. But what Republicans did last week was like, they put on this like perverse masterclass in um, arriving at the, you know, <laughs> at the unpopular position on issue after issue after issue it was unbelievable. Um, and I, the, the thing that was notable about the evening to me was that at least one of the Fox moderators um, was seeming to offer them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to distance themselves from the most toxic positions that have been taken by anyone in the party. And again and again and again, they kind of sided with the most extreme person in the room. It was usually Ramaswamy. Um, so I'm thinking about the auto workers strike. It was like the first thing they asked about. Um, you know, the, the new, we're supposed to believe that the new version of the Republican party is the party of the people, right? The party of the laborers, um, as you know, Donald Trump and his new manufacturing policy. And now suddenly we're on the side of the, of the little man. Um, and so it's, it's, it seemed to me like fairly easy to take the side of striking workers against like fat cat executives in the, uh, in the auto industry, but they couldn't do it. They're, they criticized the union leadership. Um, they like, you should go pick it in the white house because this is really about prices. <laughs> right. And it's like, mm, actually, no, <laughs> the strike is about wages. Um, and, and automation, right? Like uh, the strike is about whether workers have any power vis-a-vis -vis management um, and whether they can preserve their jobs and their livelihoods against these technological changes and then just graft and self-dealing among the executives. But they couldn't do it. Right? Public supports the union by, uh, by 30 points. They couldn't take the side of the workers because right? they're Republicans. At the end of the day, they can't do that because you know who's watching these debates or the people that bankroll them, right? Um, and the, you know, the, the Koch brothers and all these like um, Heritage Foundation drones, they can't have their candidates going out and supporting unions. They can't do it. Uh, there, was a, there was a moment, the one that I thought was the most striking in the whole debate um, <laughs> was when the moderators asked Ramaswamy about his, his position um, that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to undocumented immigrants who were born in the United States um, and gave him a bunch of rope to hang himself with, which of course he did because he's like a complete idiot. Um, he was like, and hey, you know, hey, all the legal scholars in the entire planet think that the 14th Amendment gives you the gives you birthright citizenship, but I, Vivek Ramaswamy, I have a different idea about that. Um, and uh, so that wasn't actually the, the most telling moment. The most telling moment was when they turned to Tim Scott South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who, by the way, has been dreadful. I take back everything that I say about him having a chance. He is awful. <laughs> I don't mean like he's an awful person. He's awful at debating. Like he is a very, very, very bad at it. Um, so they gave him, they were like, okay, Tim. So um, you heard what, you heard what Ramaswamy said about the fourth. That's, that's crazy, right? <laughs> tell us, tell us, they basically said like, tell us that that's crazy. Tell the audience that, like, uh, ignoring the 14th Amendment or opposing the 14th Amendment uh, provisions for, uh, for birthright citizenship, tell us that that's crazy, right? And he couldn't do it. He was like, and everybody, and the, and the moderators expect him to push back on it and be like, no, I support, <laughs> I support this thing that's clearly provided for in the U.S. Constitution. And he was like, no, I think, you know, Ramaswamy's right. You know, I mean, this... The amendment was about slavery and uh, um, it shouldn't apply to anything else. <laughs> uh, I just don't think we can get it through the Supreme Court. Like, so he made this like pragmatic argument against, um, against overturning birthright citizenship, pragmatic, but didn't actually attack the case on its merits, right? And um, only something like, a, like in polling, like a quarter of Americans want to get rid of birthright citizenship, okay? Um, and uh, so there's another there's another issue where they're just like, dramatically on the wrong side of public opinion, and no one stuck up for it. Ben, like that was the thing that was shocking to me, was not that Ramaswamy said the crazy stuff. Like everybody expected that because that's what he does. That's how he's on stage. Right? It's just say like the craziest thing um, in his most like Harvard voice um, and makes himself a contender. But that no one on stage like just interjecting. They interjected. They 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 talked over each other for like 15 different reasons. 
but they couldn't bring themselves to, to be like, actually, you know, I want to respond to this point. You know, like, I, I don't think that we as Republicans should be, uh, should be on record as a, as wanting to, <laughs> to get rid of birthright citizenship. It's a, it's a core American value has been, it's been part of our country for uh, 160 years. And, um, and I, you know, I think it's wrong to talk about overturning. No one could do that, which is not just like, it's like morally repugnant what they're doing. It's just dumb, right? It's just, you're just providing ad fodder for Republicans in the general election. Um, well, I know that's assuming any of these, any of these clowns are going to get to the general election, which is what they're not, but, <laughs> but it, it's just, um, I just don't understand fundamentally why no one in the party can have the courage to do some like idea entrepreneurship. Um, I know that they're all chasing the base around and the base is, is uh, off the chain right now, but they, they do play a role in shaping public opinion. I mean, I don't know if they know that or not, um, but public opinion is not just like this thing that's out there that Republic, that politicians have to, just be like, whoa, there's a public opinion landmine. Better not step on that. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a mutual relationship, right? Like um, politicians incentives are shaped by public opinion, public opinion, but politicians also shape public opinion. I think when a, when a, when Barack Obama came out with a policy position, um, eventually most Democrats would get on board with that thing, whatever it was. Right. Um, Presidents in particular and presidential nominees uh, are, are some of the key shapers of the party's ideological agenda. And what all of them were doing out there is they're just sort of forsaking that role. They're saying like, well, our base has become radicalized, so I better not poke the hornet's nest. Um, rather than, I think, taking the more morally defensible and courageous and I think politically wise choice of occasionally pushing back on uh, policy consensuses within the Republican party that I think have been very damaging to their election prospects overall. Absolutely. Well put. And uh, if you were going to try to analyze a dissect uh, <laughs> the policies articulated uh, by these candidates, I'd think that the only issue that I'm, that comes to mind where there's any meaningful difference is Ukraine funding Ukraine, but on every, you're, you're right. And contrast this with the Democrats in 2019, where they had the joke, we had so much fun with this, uh, where there were the 19 or whatever, the 20 candidates on stage. Uh, there was, there was diverse opinions on all the issues of the day. There was the Amy Klobuchar's of the world warning Democrats, if you go down this path of health care for all, you are going to lose this election. You know, Tim Ryan was doing, I remember that, like, they made, they who here is for uh, health care for immigrants coming over the border? The instinctive reaction was for the mall to raise their hands because they wanted to appeal to the, the base, which so bizarre considering where our base is now. Um, and yet there were still people who were like, no, I don't, you know, I, I think we're wrong here. Uh, and so, yeah, they're, uh, that's where the Republican party is right now. Uh, they, you can't even find one Republican to, how about one Republican to stand up for striking workers, one Republican to stand up for the rights of teachers to form a union. They have this, they have just declared war on teachers' unions, not just the Chicago teachers' union, which is very problematic to a lot of people uh, in Chicago, uh, me not being one of them, but all teachers' unions. Uh, Chris Christie's, you linked, uh, referred to his bizarre joke about Joe Biden sleeping with the enemy because Joe Biden's wife, Jill Biden, is a member of a teachers' union. Very strange party. <laughs> they are very strange. They are... Uh, oddball characters and they don't have a prayer to win david because they're not in any way distinguishing themselves from trump their only prayer to win is if the democrats somehow or other put jump trump in prison and as a result republicans vote against him so they can't even argue for that because they have to play along with this notion that trump is a victim all right Let's close with the border wall. I wasn't planning to talk about it, but you mentioned it. And I'm looking. I, to me, 
what Joe Biden is doing, as understandable as it may be from a purely political standpoint, particularly if you look at what's going on here in the city of Chicago, which I will not drag you into. We talk about it all the time in this show, the so-called uh, crisis we're facing. Um, I just think of, oh, my God, I'm just going to do this off the top of my head. Democrats reading the public opinion polls on issues uh, like public funding for abortion, on issues like uh, drug laws in the 1990s, uh, on issues like immigration uh, down through the years, uh, gay marriage. The Democratic approach to gay marriage can best be summed up by Barack Obama's career, where when he was running for state Senate from a district in Hyde Park in the 90s, he was very much for it. When he was running for Illinois Senate in the O's, the whole state of Illinois, he was against it. (laughs) And then when he was no longer, when he was heading into his second term, so that he wasn't ever going to face the voters again, he was for it. He was was for it, against it, and for it. And that's considered shrewd, smart politicking. And I I just, I don't know. I have a hard time signing on to that, David. Uh, Your thoughts on all this? I'll give Biden a little bit of credit here in the sense that this is a very tough issue for Democrats. Okay. Um, You know, I think as much as the party activists want to decriminalize and desecuritize and demilitarize the border, uh, which I do think is the right policy move. Um, they are, they are facing a, a kind of a wall of public opinion um, that, that simply does not support the progressive faction of our party's position on immigration. It's just, it's like not there. Right. Um, and so I do two things. One, I would return to my point about how party leaders shape public opinion Um and, and say that I wish that Biden would take a, a more public and stronger stance against the idea of building walls on our borders. Um, but I would also note that the that the key responsibility for the problem of the southern border, and as much as it is a huge problem, um, I think it's uh, I think it's blown out of proportion. But it is a policy challenge, right? Um, and you can say like, well, we should let people in. We should do this. We should do that. The reality is that like resources have to be allocated. Um, to do something like if we don't want to keep people in Mexico, we have to keep them here. And that means we have to fund the facilities and we need to hire more judges and we need to expedite their cases. Right. Um, And what Republicans have done over the last 20 years is they have, um, they have run and they've grandstanded on the problem of undocumented immigrants while refusing to make any kind of substantive compromise with Democrats that might alleviate the problem itself. They have landed on a solution to the problem that is not going to work, right? and that is building a bunch of walls. Right? Um, and the reality is that most undocumented immigrants are coming in at points of entry and that, you know, like legal points of entry, and it's not going to help to build a border wall. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to keep Venezuelan immigrants off the streets of Chicago, if that's what you're interested in. Okay. What will, what will ultimately solve the problem, it's very puzzling to me that Biden has never made a push for this at all, especially when we had um, the House, too. What would go a long way in towards alleviating the problem of the southern border is, is a really significant, far-reaching, and creative revision of our immigration laws. Okay. Um, and we could argue uh, all day and all night about what that might look like, um, but... It would involve, uh, you know, a, a temporary worker program, um, and it, it might, might involve some money for border security to get Republicans on board, whatever. But <clears throat> there's an old friend of mine from grad school named Dan Denver, who's like a progressive uh, podcast host, and he wrote a book. Um, and the premise was like um, the trap that Democrats keep falling into is they agree to to further militarize the border in exchange for concessions from Republicans that never come. So all we get is militarization of the border and we don't get anything addressing the underlying problem. Okay. Um, If Biden wants to go ahead and build a border wall, um, 
then there should be concessions coming from Republicans for that, right? Like then we should make DACA permanent, right? We should, there should be a solution for the dreamers. Uh, these are people who were brought to the United States as children who have never lived anywhere else and who are vulnerable to being deported. Um, and, uh, and he hasn't done that. I mean, it seems like he put Harris in charge of the border, <laughs> I think to like knife her in the back um, and hasn't provided any meaningful political support for any Democrat in the entire country who wants to solve the problem uh, of, uh, of undocumented immigration into the United States. Well, from whatever policy direction, you, whether you're like open, you're really like captain open borders or whether you are closer to like, okay, let's build a wall and have a guest worker program. Whatever the solution is, it is up to Congress to craft a law um, that will make the problem less visible um, that is humane, that um, that actually addresses what many people who come to the United States for. Uh, some people are seeking permanent refuge here, Ben, but many, many people just want to work for a while here and, and go back to their um, to their countries of origin. Okay, um, and we failed again and again for twenty years to pass that compromise through Congress, and here we are. It's like the president's hand, like the president's hands are in a lot of ways tied. Because Trump, for all of his outrageous rhetoric, um, presided over a lot of undocumented immigration in the United States. Nothing that he did worked, even on its own terms, right? Like if you don't care about the cruelty and the cages and the dehumanization and people dying crossing the Rio Grande, even if you don't care, but if you're just like a sociopath that just doesn't care about other human beings, it didn't work on its own terms. Like the solutions that Republicans are floating are bad policy solutions even in terms of achieving their own goals, a border wall is theater. Okay. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll, um, you know, decrease uh, crossings at certain places where the, where the, where the wall is put up. Okay. But it is not fundamentally going to eliminate the demand uh, for people coming to the United States, which is a very complicated public policy issue that, uh, that ranges from like dysfunction, corruption, and violence in, uh, in, in certain countries in Central America in South America, um, to the job market, to, you know, people still like, <laughs> I don't know why people don't just like get down on their hands and knees and like, thank God that anybody still wants to come to this country. Okay. <laughs> Cause I don't, you know, unless I'm fleeing violence, I don't understand it, but I'm trying to get out. Right? But, um, yeah, but they don't care. You know, they don't, here's the thing, but they don't want to solve the problem. I like if somebody's out there genuinely believes that building a wall is going to solve the problem of undocumented immigration to the United States. I just don't know what to tell them because it's not going to solve the problem. And so Biden, I'm just, this is disappointing to me. Um, and I think that, sorry, I know I've been going on and on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop in one second. Right. But like the theory of the case here, once again, is that like moderate swing voters are, are, um, are going to approve of this and then vote for Biden next year. When from polling, what it looks like Biden's biggest problem right now is, is under enthusiasm among his own base. And building a border wall is not going to make anybody in the Democratic base happy. So I don't know what I don't know what the deal is here. Uh, well, I, I I can tell you what he thinks is happening. Um, this is his interpretation of pleas from <clears throat> politicians like uh, Mayor uh, Adams of New York or uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson here in Chicago regarding uh, the influx of Venezuelans to their city. Uh, and, um, it is so bizarre, such a bizarre misreading of what's happening just from a purely, just from literally what's happening, just for, take the politics out of it. Just the emotions that people have, the frustrations that people have, uh, the inability of governments like Chicago's government and New York's government to deal with the influx of Venezuelan immigrants who've come to their, been busted in their city by Gregory Abbott. Take, put it aside. You said it best. Those Venezuelans are coming in at legal points of entry. The reason that Abbott can put them on buses is because he knows where they are. They're not swimming in across a river. It's just utterly preposterous. This wall is not going to alle- and I it's not going to alleviate any of the Venezuelan that who are coming. It's not going to stop the flow from the from Texas. His no, this is so classic Democrat. I'm sorry, Dave. I, I gotta say that I've been watching this my whole life. This is how Democrats respond. They try to read 
the emotions in the room. It doesn't matter if it's practical or pragmatic or if it's going to solve anything. It's like this will be something that Brandon Johnson can say to the people of Chicago. We understand your your plight. We're doing something for you. No, you're not doing anything. I, it, I, but I, it's in defense of this lunacy. Let's go back to where we began. Think about the other party. As you just pointed out, they're led by Donald Trump. There's nothing remotely logical about him, David. So you can't have a logical response to a very complex problem if the half of your government, your governing partners are absurd. I don't, I don't know what, to, I don't know what to say other than, than that, the, everything, every part about this is crazy, but your point, the last point was brilliant, which I'm going to steal that line again and again, a border wall is theater. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with Venezuelans in police. Day. You want to stop that influx? Take the sanctions off of Venezuela. Let that country have a breathing economy for crying out loud. The other thing that's shocking to me, Ben, just in terms of like historical perspective, is like whatever you think should be done about Venezuela, fine. But what what you have is like tens of thousands of people fleeing uh, a far left dictatorship, <laughs> right? Which in the past Republicans would have welcomed people fleeing uh, a left-wing dictatorship with open arms. It was like Republican policy for like 70 years. It's like anybody from Cuba, um, anyone uh, from, from Vietnam, right? Like, come on down. Well, this is your, this is your refuge. Um, and for whatever reason, <clears throat> cough, cough, racism, um, they cannot bring themselves to support people who are fleeing the dysfunction in, in Venezuela. And so it's like, they can't bring themselves to, to support the people fleeing and they can't bring themselves to change the policy that might alleviate the suffering. It's like, well, okay, what do you want then? You you just want to, you just want to get political capital out of this. You don't actually, you don't have any interest in solving the problem. You know? Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a, a very important point. Yes. And I don't even know how much racism it is because like they welcome Vietnamese. I mean, they welcome the dark skinned Cubans. The, so there is racism in, embedded in this because Donald Trump uh, used that specter to scare people in 2015. I just, uh, it, it's just utterly a mad, it's madness. That's about all I can say. And uh, the Democrats are trying to figure a way out. Uh, and <laughs> as they had do in the past, uh, David, they end up. You you cited that gentleman who said that Democrats are always uh, bailing out Republicans in Washington. I think you said his name is Josh Marshall, uh, and um, this is kind of a variation of that. You know what I'm saying? Democrats are always uh, trying to negotiate an ideological point. <laughs> it's like uh, skiing through the poles. You know how you slaloming down a. Uh, how do I get through this obstacle course that the Republicans have put? All right, enough madness for the day. Uh, David Ferris, um, great job as always. And I urge everybody uh, to check out his columns in Newsweek and Slate. You're going to smile, ladies and gentlemen, as he explains it. You got, I don't know where these talking, but like the Dunder headline. That was such a great line. It made me laugh. Where did that come from, by the way? Just, I, you know, I like to alliterate and, uh, you know, I, one thing I like to do in my writing is to try to find, but to try to find like a reroute myself around cliches, you know, so that yeah, using, you know, just using different, some sometimes archaic words to say the same thing that would be a cliche under other circumstances is, it's like a fun challenge for me. And so I had to describe, I had to find a new way to describe idiots. Um, and that's where I, like, where I landed. <laughs> Dunder. I'm like, oh, that's good. The English language is very rich with insults, you know? So uh, we got to dig deep and we can find some great yeah. insults. If you really put your mind to it. Uh, and there's, 
a lot to be insulted by. All right. Very good. David Ferris, thank you so much. Uh, as always, a great job. And that's uh, David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.